Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles when away. Arrived, the they found the telephone and electricity line. Weird described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. Cup of murder. The 1960s was a time when women turned in their aprons for a briefcase and a paycheck. It was an unprecedented time, and women who chose a career were seen as pioneers. They were also seen as targets. On August 28, 1963, two women well on their way to a successful career found their lives and futures snuffed out in a case that sent New York City women into a tailspin. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. 21-year-old Janice Wiley in the 1960s was doing something unprecedented for many women. She was working. Janice, who came from a famous family of writers, was working as a copy girl at the Midtown headquarters of Newsweek in Manhattan. She ran errands, distributed wire service copies, and filled paste pots while taking acting classes in the city in hopes of becoming a big star. August 28, 1963 was a big day for the newspaper. This was the day that Martin Luther King made his infamous I Have a Dream speech 
and the office was bustling with writers trying to cover the big story. So they were shocked and kind of angry when Janice just didn't show up to work. They tried calling her apartment and got no answer, not from Janice or either of her two roommates. While they scrambled to make do without her, Janice's other roommate, 23-year-old employee at Time Life, Patricia Tolls, came home to find their apartment had been ransacked and was covered in blood. In one of the bedrooms was the body of Janice Wiley and their 23-year-old roommate, Emily Hoffert. Both women were bound by both their hands and feet, tied together back to back, knocked unconscious with a glass Coke bottle, and had been stabbed over 60 times with their own kitchen knives. The killer stabbed at the women with such force that two out of the three knives used had broken handles. Janice, who was wearing only a towel, had been sexually assaulted. Immediately, this case took the media by storm as they were dubbed the career girl murders. That is because, in a world where not many women were driven by career over family, all three girls living in the apartment were employed. Emily, like Janice and Patricia, had a promising career. She was a serious academic and had, just 39 days before her murder, moved to New York City to embark on a teaching career. She too came from a prominent family after being adopted by a well-known physician. Together, these three working girls lived in what they thought was a safe, rent-controlled building in the Upper East Side with a doorman and an awning over the entrance. Not once did they think their lives, lives that were only just beginning, were in any danger. These girls represented the thousands of working women who came from all over America to larger cities in order to seek jobs and careers. And these women now felt unsafe. Hundreds of detectives were assigned to solve this case. But as days turned into weeks with no arrest, it was heading into unsolved territory. They initially assumed that the girls knew the killer as there was no sign of forced entry. And though ransacked, nothing seemed to be missing from inside. But a check into the girls' address books didn't turn up any viable leads, nor did the $10,000 reward. They also began to suspect that the girls were specifically targeted because of their desire to gain freedom and independence through a paycheck. There were a lot of people, a lot of men, who didn't think that this was a woman's place. Handbooks about safety and self-defense began to circulate in order to protect those women still working. Handbooks that emphasized the importance of prevention of the attacks, like having a male bodyguard or companion at all times. Months passed with no new leads. That was until the following April when a woman named Elba Barrero identified a 19-year-old boy named George Whitmore Jr. as her attempted rapist. Though it is important to mention here that George's photo was the only one Elba was shown. George was described as a slow, meek, acne-faced black boy who dropped out in eighth grade, but despite growing up in a crime-riddled area of Brooklyn, had never been in trouble with the law. When he was arrested, in his wallet were photos of attractive women, one of which was a white blonde woman that detectives claimed was Janice Wiley. Her family disagreed, but nevertheless, George was brought in as a suspect. After hours of heavy-handed interrogation, George confessed to murdering Janice and Emily. The NYPD was happy to announce that they had the killer behind bars, stating that he gave information that only the killer would have known. But Manhattan prosecutors noticed that the details he knew was all information known by police beforehand, meaning he didn't provide any new information. George Whitmore eventually denied his confession, 
claiming he was beaten, had no counsel present, and that his request for a lie detector test had been denied. Not only that, but witnesses placed the young man in Wildwood, New Jersey, 159 miles away from the apartment, watching the live broadcast of Martin Luther King's speech. Despite all of this, he was indicted and charged with the murders. On October 9, 1964, a man named Nathan Delaney, junkie and small-time dealer, was arrested for the murder of a rival drug dealer. Now, while this initially seemed unrelated, he offered to make a deal with prosecutors. In exchange for leniency in his sentence, he would give the name of the real career girl murder. He went on to explain that, on the day of the killing, an old friend named Richard Robles came to his house covered in blood and demanding drugs. When asked about the blood, Richard stated, I just iced two dames. Richard, a 22-year-old career criminal who had just been released from prison, went on to describe the murder in detail. Nathan and his wife were then wired and asked to go meet with Richard to discuss the details of his crime. Whatever he said was enough to convince police, and he was officially charged on January 26, 1965. Richard Robles was brought to trial in autumn of 1965, where Nathan Delaney testified that, according to Richard, his reason for killing the girls was that Emily, after being tied up, declared that she would remember his face and report him to police. He was found guilty on December 1, 1965, and sentenced to life in prison after the abolishment of the death penalty just months before the case. He remained steadfast in his innocence until a parole hearing in November of 1986. He then claimed he broke into the apartment looking for drugs when Janice, having just gotten out of the shower, he attacked and raped her when Emily came home. Her defiant attitude enraged him, and once she threatened to turn him in, he knew he had to kill them both. His parole was, unsurprisingly, not granted. He remains in prison and blames his tragic upbringing for his crimes. As for George Whitmore, he was released and had all charges against him dropped. He became one of the prime examples cited when the U.S. Supreme Court issued the guidelines we know now as the Miranda Rights and went on to try and live a normal life after 1,216 days in prison. Unfortunately, after winning a large sum of money in a settlement, which he quickly blew through, George became disabled during a boating accident, suffered from depression and alcoholism, and died alone in a nursing home at just 68 years old. The officers who questioned him were never charged. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 29th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This is a daily podcast that tells you what happened on this day in true crime history. In short, easy-to-listen-to episodes that you can finish on your commute or while you enjoy your morning coffee. So make sure you check back every morning. My name is Karina. I am the creator and host. You can find Morning Cup of Murder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have also set up a Patreon where you can donate a small monthly contribution to the podcast. All those links are in the episode description. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.